Go ahead and grab it and go to Genesis 1. It should be the easiest uh, it should be the easiest thing for you to ever do for the rest of the year, asking you to open your Bible and go to Genesis 1. And while you're getting there, what we're doing today is we are starting in a uh, 12-week series. We're going to be looking at stories of God restoring His people for His glory. Stories of God restoring His people for His glory. And we've said this many times, and we say this many times as we go through our worship, the way we kind of do that liturgical structure as we go through our worship. And that's this, that the Bible is one redemptive story. The Bible is actually, it's 66 books, but it actually tells one redemptive story that starts with God, it leads to Jesus Christ, and then it culminates with God restoring all things back to Himself. And we think of this word redeem, what it really means from a biblical perspective is the restoration of rights to a disadvantaged family member by the payment of a price or ransom. Remember, if you, if you guys have ever studied through the book of Ruth, and you remember Boaz comes in, and he serves as a ransom uh, for Ruth, where she marries him and she gains back her rights that she lost when her husband dies. So she gained back her rights, and in that way, Boaz was a ransom for her. He redeemed her. And that's where we get that word. We would think of that word today as being restoring value to something or making something that's fallen into disrepair uh, useful again. That's how we would think of something that we're redeeming. And you guys remember earlier uh, last year, we started this thing called the, re- the Redeeming the Warehouse Project. Where we moved into the entire space. We had all this stuff that we needed to do, some of which we're, we're still doing. It's still in progress. But what we did was we took the shell of this old furniture warehouse building and we created something new inside. We breathed new life into something that was otherwise lifeless or dead. All right? So, when we get into stories of the Bible over the next 12 weeks, which is where we're heading, our focus, believe it or not, will not be on the stories themselves as much as the God who rewrites the stories. Stories we corrupt by our sin, but that God ultimately redeems at the cross of Christ. And as I was thinking about our relationship to Bible stories, it's an interesting thing because I think that we fall into two different camps. As we think about these stories and these men and women of the Bible, some of you grew up going to Sunday school and you heard the stories of these Bible characters, right? Some of you guys dressed up as shepherds for a Christmas play. Uh, You sang songs like Father Abraham for VBS. Or you were told stories of David and Goliath. Or maybe you heard messages like, Dare to be a Daniel. Maybe you guys experienced like that. What you were sold, and why I say sold instead of told, and again, uh, you know, d- don't, don't worry if I'm using that kind of phrase. Um, you don't have to go after your old Sunday school teachers and slaughter them because they sold you something instead of told you something. But what you were sold is that these, these people, these men and women, these were heroes of the Bible. These were the heroes of the Bible. Men and women that should inspire you, right? To grab the bull by the horns and conquer the world for God all before lunchtime. That's kind of what you were given to think when you sort of understood and heard and maybe even acted out some of these stories. And maybe some of you, that wasn't your experience. Maybe some of you grew up uh, with, with a little bit of a different upbringing. You didn't really grow up in church. You didn't really grow up hearing these stories, and so your reference is quite different. You're not familiar with all the different stories in the Bible. Your reference point is Charlton Heston as Moses, right? Or Russell Crowe as Noah, or that guy who got swallowed by the fish, whoever he was, right? 
Um, these are stories that feel more like a Bible version of the Avengers or something for you. You know, without the awesome graphics, of course. But these are things that you don't really plug into other than sort of at a, at a, at a distance. So when we approach the Bible, we need to be clear as we launch into today, as we launch into the series, we need to be clear about who the hero is. Because when we talk about God's word, we got to ask the question, whose story is this anyway? I mean, whose story are we reading? Is it really about these flawed men and women that we like to prop up on a pedestal? Well, no, actually the Bible is the story of God. The Bible is the story of God and his power to take broken men and women and redeem and restore them for his glory and to judge those who refuse to love, trust, and obey him. That's the story of God in the Bible. My prayer is that our eyes will be open to see that there's one hero of every story in the Bible and it's God. One of the hardest things that we face, you guys have all probably faced this, I've faced this as human beings, is when someone else gets credited for the work that we've done. Has that ever happened to anybody? You've done something, and then somebody else gets all the credit for it, and you sit back and you go, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill him. I was the one that did that. Well, what's interesting is that we do that, in a sense, when we read the Bible and we turn it into a book we think God wrote about us. So what I want to do right now is pray that God would open our eyes to him and his story over the next 12 weeks. So let's do that. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray for that. Lord, we realize coming into a new year, we realize what our tendencies are. We realize our tendency is to make our lives about ourselves. And because of that, when we open up your word, we do the same thing and we miss the majesty and the glory and the power that you have put into the words of this book because this is a book that is clearly about you. And because it's about you, it can actually change us. So when we read these stories and we hear about how you intervened in the lives of very, very sinful and flawed men and women, we know that we have hope because you will intervene in the midst of our lives and you will change us and you will continue to transform us. So Lord, I pray that we would walk away every week with seeing you as brighter and more glorious and greater than we ever have before so that when we open up and open up our lives to the stories that you've given us in this book, we're not seeing them as merely events that unfolded but they're events that you unfolded for your glory and your purpose and the people that you have chosen. Lord, allow us to see that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, let me ask you guys this question as we lift off. Raise your hand if you've made some New Year's resolutions this year. Oh my gosh. Here's a resolution. Stop lying. I mean, what about that? Like two of you guys raised your hands. I love that. Um... You know, New Year's resolutions are so interesting, and it's something that you have a conversation with with somebody about every year, isn't it? Um, we all have our resolutions, or we say, no, they're not resolutions, they're goals, right? Or we try to change the, the, the phrasing and the name of them. But New Year's resolutions, they tell us something about ourselves, don't they? They actually are saying something about us, and what it's typically saying about ourselves is that we're about ourselves, 
What New Year's resolutions really point to, and let me just speak from experience here, they point to the fact that we are incredibly narcissistic. That our end goal at the end of the year to be the beginning goal or resolution at the beginning of the year is self-improvement. That's really what we want. That's really what we're thinking as we go into the new year. And my question as we take sort of a brief snapshot this morning into the story of Adam and Eve is this. What do you think God's resolution is for your year? Or for your life, for that matter? We know what our resolutions are. And they're pretty narrow, to be quite honest. They usually involve less food, bigger muscles, better health, more money, and new relationships, if we're being really honest with ourselves. It's anything that we think we can change, we would like to be able to change. And we would like to be able to know that we have the strength and the power to go after and fulfill that change, right? And at the root of those desires, if I can make this argument, is actually redemption, right? Because we love stories of redemption. We love second chances, right? Man, J.J. Abrams, man, he gave us all a second chance at Star Wars, didn't he? And it's like just blowing out the box office records right now. But we like that story because it's a story of redemption. It's the Republic getting another chance to defeat the evil empire. I'm not giving anything away. But that's what's happening right there. We love stories of redemptions. We want to know that we have another shot to make things right and to reverse some things, right? We want to reverse some of our failures. We want to improve our chances. We want to move past some of the hard things, don't we? And oddly enough, oddly, maybe not so oddly, is that God's resolution for us is redemption too, That is his resolution for us. But it's far more reaching than ours. And it's far more richer than our version of it. And here's the big idea for this morning. God resolves to redeem us through Jesus to restore our joy in his glory. That's where I'm going today. That's the anchor. That's the the line right there. Let me say it again. God resolves to redeem us through Jesus to restore our joy in his glory. Glory. So if you wonder if God has New Year's resolutions, well, he doesn't have any for himself because he's perfect. But the ones that he has for us are that right there. So what I want to do is I want to start here in Genesis 1.1. And I want us to have some context because we're going to anchor ourselves in Genesis 3 here in a few minutes. But I want to kind of step into what it is that we're going to be looking at when we go through the story of Adam and Eve. And if you turn to Genesis 1.1, the first Uh, thing you're going to read here is this. In the beginning, God created. I'm just going to stop right there. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. As my mic is making some noise. We could spend all day on those five words alone. We could spend all day, we could spend a A year just breaking down those five words. But what we need to realize is that God opens his word, the word of God, the transcendent eternal word of God. He opens it by telling us something about who? About us? No, about himself. In the beginning, God created. And actually, when we get to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John, he fleshes it out a little further, telling us that In the beginning, he's talking about Jesus here. So he brings it back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, in the beginning was God the Father, God the Son, 
And if you go to verse 2 here, the earth, earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see God the Spirit who was present with God the Father and God the Son. So what we get here right at the beginning, when we launch right into the first words that God wanted us to read in his book, we get the plot of the story. It's revealed to us in the first sentence on the first page. In the beginning, God created. And what God creates, God has dominion over. God has dominion over the things he creates. And if you have a hard time swallowing that, then let me just throw it out to you. Then create something. Create something out of nothing. Like if that bothers you, just go ahead and create something out of nothing. Well, I paint things. Well, where do you get the paper and the paint? Well, I build things. Where do you get the material? I write songs. Who provided the notes? Who provided the chromatic scale? See, none of you all create anything. I've been writing songs for 25 years, and I like to think of myself as somebody who, well, man, I created this song. It was just, man, there was nothing there. It, was, it just came out of thin air. And look at just this, this just majestic piece of original creation that I created. It's like, no, you didn't. You've just been stealing melodies and trading out on melodies that have been written for 50, 100, 1,000 years by better men who have been more original than you. That's really what's going on. There's no creation going on. There might be a little invention when I'm at my best, but there's no creation. None of us have anything to make something out of nothing or ex nihilo, which is the word that the Bible uses to describe that God creates out of nothing. There's no pre-existing matter that God uses when he creates. It literally is out of nothing. And by the way, if you want to do a, a little like head twist, God also creates the nothing. All right? So obviously this is a very short and slightly absurd defense of creation that will not get me asked to any debates or to win any awards, all right? So my desire is not to launch into a defense of creation right now. That could take us 28 years as much as to point out that if you believe God created all things and you believe all things are his and under his exclusive ownership. So believing the words of this book that God created, it allows you to fall under that category. You believe that everything is God's and everything is under his ownership. And then we get to verse 27 and we see that God's creation continues. And we're stepping through this very, very briefly. Verse 27, you get to the fact that God created us. He created man. He created male and female in his image. And he also blessed them with the task to multiply the earth and have dominion over everything on the earth. So God created man He created them male and female, and he blessed them with a task to multiply the earth, have dominion over the things that are already his, but to be a caretaker of sorts of the things that he has created on earth. And then what happens as we get to chapter 2 is we see a more in-depth look at how God created man and woman with one thing abundantly clear as we get to chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And I'm going to read that, and it says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. What this tells us is that we don't have any game, any game other than what God has given us. You see what it says there in in verse 7? The Lord God formed the man from dust. I mean, that just takes out any sense of arrogance 
that we have, when we think that we somehow contribute to who we are, he formed man out of dust. And then we get down to eight, and the Lord God planted a garden. And even, again, we didn't, have any, we didn't have any game in the planting of that garden. God planted the garden in the east, and there he, what did he do? He put the man. So God creates us, he forms us, and he places us. And all of this is just to give us a sense of our place and position and posture before God. God created. God created. But God not only created, God also valued what he created. He puts value on the things he created. Because when you go through chapter 1, he calls what he creates good. As he goes through the creation process, he calls everything that he does good. He created light. He creates the night, the atmosphere, the sea, the plants, vegetation, trees, fruit, the sun, the moon, fish, birds, animals. All the way until he creates man, it was all good. He deems it all good. And what we learn by this is that God's standard for good, man, it's different than our standard for good. God's standard of good is perfection. His standard of good is perfection. And it's because God is committed to his glory first and foremost. And this is just great news for us. This is great and comforting news for us as we sit here the very beginning of January, staring down the corridor of another year. It means that every move God makes in the lives of people is motivated by his glory being greatest and more glorious in their lives. And this gives his creation greatest joy, meaning, purpose, and happiness. Listen, if God was committed to anything less than his glory as his highest aim, then we'd have a God motivated to act by something less than perfect. But that's not what we have. Because God's aim is to be committed to his own glory, which is perfect. Everything he does is going to speak and going to outplay that in in our lives. So God created, and since God places a value on what he created, then he's going to want to redeem what he created when it falls into a state of decay. And that brings us to chapter 3. So God created, God values what he created, And we're going to see how God redeems what he created. Let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And then verse 4 says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's stop right there. Adam and Eve. There it is. It's that story that maybe you guys have heard a million times. That tragic, fateful story of Adam and Eve. 
Adam, you had one job. Adam and Eve, you had one job. Be fruitful and multiply what I've given you, God says. Obey and worship me. Experience my pleasure and my peace. You don't even have to get dressed in the morning. That's how good it is. That's how good it was for Adam and Eve. And yet we see this fateful dialogue happen between Eve and Satan in the form of a serpent. He approaches Eve. He asks her a question that called God's good and instructed and truthful words into question. He says, did God actually say you can't eat all this good fruit? You notice what he does there? He goes after what God has prohibited over what God has graciously provided. That's what Satan always does. That's the attack of the enemy. That's the feeding of a lie. He introduces the idea of distrust. He introduces the idea of discontent. Does God really have what's best for me? And we think about that even in the new year. We go back to the things that give us the most comfort. We go back to the resolutions and the things that we want to go after that ironically, we went after this same time last year, but yet we're still going after this year. We're not trusting, we're not content that God has given us something far better. He's given us a fruit that's far better than the one that our hearts and our actions keep going after. So then we see Eve and she answers. She said, no, no, we can eat most of the fruit, but there's one tree we can't eat or even touch or we'll die. So, so Eve's, like Eve's on point, right? What's going on right now, she's having a dialogue with Satan in the form of a serpent and Eve answers. She's right there. She answers on point. She says, no, no, we can eat it, all the other fruit, but we can't eat this one particular tree that God put in the middle of the garden and he said, don't touch. So she's on point. The serpent immediately contradicts. He contradicts the word of God. He says this. He says, you won't die, sister. That's not true at all. You will not die. It's just the opposite. Your eyes will be open to things God has prohibited you from knowing. So what he does is he calls God's character into question. And doesn't that sound so similar to some of the stories of our lives when we find ourselves falling into areas or patterns of sin that we know are contrary to what God has for us? Man, we just, we just think, no, I, 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 I mean, there's a part of me that, that feels like I can rationalize this. I can justify this somehow. I mean, this is our story. And then Eve, tragically, tragically for Eve, the tree turns from death into delight and desire. She eats, and she gives some to Adam. So she eats of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to be eating from. She takes it. It looked good. The fruit, something that was, something that was indicative of death to her, now looks like delight to her. And she takes a bite, she grabs it, and then she gives some to Adam, who apparently has been standing there the whole time. Homeboy has been standing there observing the whole thing, keeping out of it. Dude, I'm just, you know what? I mean, that's your conversation. I'm just going to stand back. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to interrupt. I don't want to upset my wife. Good job, Adam. Good job, brother. Play right into the cliche of the absentee, uninvolved, checked out husband. There it is. You ever wonder where that came from? Came from Adam. He was right there the whole time. He was with her. She just reached over and handed him the fruit. And he took it from her and he ate. Here's what's interesting. 
what they found was that the serpent was half right. All right? Their eyes were opened. He wasn't lying about that. Their eyes were opened, but not like they thought. Their eyes became open to their own shame and their own nakedness, like it says in verse 7. And that's what happens when temptation lures us with the lie that deathly things are actually delightful things. Hey, Adam and Eve, that was a pleasurable experience for them. They gained something that day. They gained a pleasurable experience. It never says that fruit wasn't delicious. It never says that fruit, whatever it was, wasn't the most delicious piece of fruit that they ever sunk their teeth into. It doesn't say that. You know, it's, it's like the last two and a half weeks of my life. There has been a table in the corner of my kitchen that has been just stacked, literally stacked with, I don't even, it's, it's just literally food that I'm ashamed to even tell you right now. I mean, so many cookies and candy and, I mean, just this, I mean, I literally, I literally have like crumbs in my beard right now. It's like out of control. We were cleaning the house yesterday, literally swimming in a sea of cookie crumbs. I mean, I got to repent to you guys right now about that, man. That's the reality. But it was something that lured her in and she took of it. And they gained a pleasurable experience. But they also gained a need, didn't they? They gained a pleasurable experience. They also gained a need that they previously didn't have. They now had a need for forgiveness because they chose in that moment not to trust God. That's what happened. And then we get to verse 8. And the hero of the story emerges. Let's read together. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God... And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. It was him. And then I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then to the woman he said this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Then he says in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken. Let me remind you of something, Adam. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We'll just stop right there. 
And what's amazing about this passage is how we see the redemptive work of God in these three ways that I'm going to lay out right now. As we see God working, as we see God not even waiting or hesitating to come in to the lives of people that just rebelled against him. Look at what God's posture was. He calls to them in their sin. You look at verse 8. God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God entered into a world that was already corrupted by sin. The world was already corrupted by sin when God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then we see verse 9. God called to the man. We see God descending upon man in his most sinful, sinful state, coming to us with mercy and with grace. It brings us to a verse like Romans 5.8 where it says God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we see the beginning of this here when we look through this passage in Genesis 3. So God calls to them in their sin. And then we see that God convicts them of their sin. We see the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we see how God reveals his sin to them. He asks some questions. He gets something stirring in their hearts like the Holy Spirit does with us when we know that we aren't living as we should be living. He says, where are you? In verse 9. He says, have you eaten of the fruit I told you not to? In verse 11. He says, what is this thing that you have done? In verse 13. And in between all of that are just excuses from Adam and Eve. They start making cover-ups. They start betraying the other person. These are the types of resolutions that sin creates in us. That's what sin does for us. But notice that God doesn't hesitate to convict them because they had to know what their sin was in order to understand what God was going to do about their sin. So God calls them in their sin. He convicts them of their sin. And then we see that God, third, He covers their sin. It's what we see in the work of Jesus Christ. He covers their sin. We see a Trinitarian work here in Genesis happening. Verse 15 is what theologians actually call the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel since it's the first time we see the promise of redemption. And we don't want to miss this grand narrative here. He promises to bruise or to crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. Someday, the offspring of the woman coming in the person of Jesus would destroy death. He would crush the head of death. And then we get to verse 20. And it said, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So unlike the the unsuitable clothing that Adam and Eve made to hide from God, what does God do? Well, God kills an animal and he clothes them. And by doing that, he points to the need for a sacrifice to be made in order to cover our sin. 
And we bump, bump up to Romans again. We, say, we hear this from Paul. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And then he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, talking about Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's us, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that's a really short, very quick overview through this story. But through all of this, what we see is a God who absolutely confounds us. He confounds us. And how easily did Adam and Eve's resolutions change? How easily were those marred and altered? Do you ever question your resolutions? Now we just make resolutions. We write them down. We dream them up. We type them in. Do you ever question your resolutions? Because our resolve, as we've seen here, as we've seen with Adam and Eve, our resolve is flawed. We choose the wrong pursuits. How did Eve, how did Eve become so disillusioned with paradise? I mean, the blink of a second. How did she become so bored with paradise, with everything that God had given her? Ever wonder that? I mean, she had the good fruit to eat. But her heart was led to believe that what was best was not good enough. Man, I had my, my niece out for the last two weeks. Man, you hit Christmas morning and it's just ridiculous, right? I mean, she has like 209 presents. And she opens the first one... And she literally just goes running out of the room and wants to play with some old toy that her parents brought with her that she's been playing with like since birth. She, doesn't want to, she refuses to open any other presents. She doesn't want to see anything. She doesn't want to touch anything. She has all of these amazing gifts unwrapped under the tree. And she's like, yeah, I'm not, not, not having it. Not into it. I mean, all of that. And she just wanted to go back to her old raggy toy that they had taken on the plane. 3,000 miles, you know? It's insane. And we laugh at that, and it's funny, but like, how do we not do that? I remember my dad, it was so funny, because my dad grew up in, he grew up in South LA. He really did grow up as kind of a thug. I hate to say it, but he did. And um, the bottom line was that he, he grew up with absolutely no money. I mean, just poverty level, just poverty level most of his life. And one of the things, one of the things that his mom used to make him when it was all they could afford was sugar sandwiches. So they could afford a loaf of bread and some sugar, and your mom, being the grand chef that she was, threw out a piece of bread, poured sugar on it, and gave it to him. And he said he would eat that for days on end because that's all they could afford. So here's what's ironic. So dad grows up, he starts a business, becomes mildly successful, certainly successful enough to afford something other than sugar sandwiches, and that dude used to eat sugar sandwiches like they were going out of style. I mean, he could afford to get anything he wanted. But man, he just, he went back to that. He went back to that. It wasn't better for him. It wasn't good food. It wasn't nutritious. But he went back to that. Because he had been trained into thinking that it was better. Are your resolutions like that? Do you so easily go after pursuing sugar sandwiches? Is that how it is? You go after what tastes best in the moment? Because you know what that is? That is self-glory at the end of the day. That is self-glory. It's narcissism. It's me. 
It's me. Somebody who God has taken as being one of the most self-righteous, narcissistic people that I have ever known. And he's doing a work inside of me to change that. Because at the end of the day, I want to go back to those sandwiches. I want to go back to that old raggedy toy when he's saying, but I have a feast. I have all these other gifts. Why do you keep going back to that? What is it about that that draws you in? Well, what draws me in is that I'm the one that gets to choose it. I'm the one that gets to set my own course. I'm the one that gets to do what's right in my own eyes. Whose glory will you pursue this year? My fear is that all of us will continue to pursue the same resolutions, man. We'll receive the same results, and next year, we're here again. I'm just going to preach the same message forever, first week of January. That was a joke. But do you see the viciousness of the cycle? Do you see how much like Adam and Eve we are? How easily we rationalize our pursuits? Maybe it's a little different for some of you. Maybe that's not really what it is as you go into the new year. Maybe for some of you, you're like some of my friends that I heard from this week. I got a text from my friend the day after Christmas. He said, yesterday was a bad day, Ronnie. He goes, my dad died of a heart attack suddenly. I need to catch a flight tonight to Anchorage. Nowhere near his dad. Has to work out all these details. Has no idea what's going to happen. Just knows that his new year is starting with the death of his dad. I talked to another friend the same day. I got an email from him. He said, I've been trying with my wife now for years. And she's going to file for divorce on January 1st. She's out. I've pleaded with her. I've begged her. I've tried to be a good husband. I've been faithful. And she wants out. She's walking away from her faith. And another guy, and I'm not making this up, another guy I had a meeting with the next day, his church. His church is ending. Pastor of a church. Just can't get traction. Everything he's been working, going after for years now, he has to give it up. He has to close the doors. Is God going to redeem those situations? What are the resolutions of men and women like that who are facing those kinds of obstacles, right? It's not just bigger muscles. It's not just I, want, I need to lose some weight. It's not just I want to, you know, have a better 401k. Man, if I could just tuck some money away, if I could just get a better house, if I could just somehow accumulate a little bit more, if I could do better with some of those things. Maybe you're a man or a woman who is facing insurmountable odds, And all your resolution is, is God, I just need your help because I have no idea what the rest of this year is going to look for me. So who is God in all of this? Is he the God who redeems all of these things? Is he the God that redeems us in our stubbornness? He is. He is. God redeems because he's personally invested in what he's created. The reason why we want something to be better in the new year is because we're personally invested in it. Only a creator God 
invested in his creation and his glory, would send his son to try and redeem it. God sending his son to crush the head of the serpent on the cross, it gives testimony to his character and his intent for our lives. Otherwise, why would God care? Why would he care? We care about the things we're invested in, don't we? And yet, how soon, how soon will we throw in the towel on our resolutions? How soon will that happen for us this year? How many times do we leave marriages and relationships and jobs that go south? It's not worth it, man. That's what we say. It's not worth it. What we need is a different resolution. God didn't send his son because we were worth it. But because he is worthy. And if we receive his son, our true worth, the worth we lost in Adam, will be found in him. This is the resolution of God to redeem us through Jesus, to restore our joy in his glory. What does that mean? What is restored joy in his glory? It means to come back to worshiping him. That's God's resolution for all of us this year, to become worshipers of him. So let me end with this. Will we stop bowing to ourselves? Will we worship God? Will we become what God resolves for us, which is this, to be godly, to be changed, to be devoted to him, to live as ones covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, finding our truth and our hope in the cross. If you get to the end of a year where you've gone after those things, and we're going to be having a different conversation heading into 2017. God's resolution is to redeem us through Jesus, to restore our joy in his glory. And it is a resolve that will not fail. And we come before him in humility and seek after his face. Let's pray. Lord, humble us in these words as we look at the story of Adam and Eve, as we see our first parents, as we see the way that they fell. Lord, we want to look at your story. We want to look at the ways that you called to them and the ways that you convicted them and the ways that you covered their sin because that's available to us. That's the story that extends to all of us. So Lord, we pray that our resolution this year would be the resolution that you have for us, which is to continue this redemption process in us. Lord, make it anew in us. Refresh it in us. Redeem us through Jesus so that our joy is restored in your glory. To not see the things of the earth as being responsible to give us our satisfaction. Lord, we pray that you would remove desires that shouldn't be there. We pray that you would convict us this morning. Because in Christ, you haven't condemned us. But you've made all things new. And Lord, in that, we can glory in you. We can find rest in you. We can find satisfaction and contentment in you. If we come before you in humility and repentance, opening your word, meditating, on the things that you've given us in your scriptures. 
Lord, let that be our resolution this year as you've resolved to be our God this year, we pray. And all God's people said,